0: Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives.
1: Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University.
0: Hi, this is Gary Sheffer, and we're back with The Crux here with Mike Fernandez. Hi, Mike. How you doing? I'm doing well. Well, that first year, of being a college professor here at Boston University went so quickly.
1: Oh, it's amazing. You know, it, it's also interesting because when, when I first went off to college, I thought, these professors have it knocked. <laughs> you, you, you know, they go in, they give us tests, they uh-huh. ask us questions, uh-huh. what in the hell do they do? Uh, yeah. and, and, and what I didn't realize is just the work in terms of prep yes. ahead of time. And in order to do it well, to think through the syllabus in such a way that you're confident that the students are going to take something away from this class. And then you've got the challenge of how do you pull all of that together in terms of scheduling guests into the classroom pulling this, this syllabus together in such a way that uh, people are being tested pr- particularly relative to communication. You want right. them to be able to stand up and deliver a talk. You want them to be able to write extremely well. Uh, you, plus, you also have to think about what's their comp- comprehension of right. what you've gone through. So you're looking at three or four different varieties of how to test whether or not they're actually getting getting through. Yeah, you're getting
0: through. And that for me, of course, the work thing, you and I both teach courses over the course of about three hours. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a once a week course. And so you're on Mm -hmm. for three hours. And and, uh, so you have to not only do everything that you said, but make sure each week that you've got engaging material that tests all of the things you it's talked got, it's about. It's got to right? be fresh. It's got to be fresh, you know. and It's got to be engaging. Right.
1: It's got to be about things they care about. That's too. right.
0: That's right. So uh, it's been a real eye-opener for me. I, I have learned so much. I guess lectured over the years at so yeah. many places.
1: It's not the same. It
0: is not the same. You know, your guest lecturer, you come in, you're like the, you know, the guest host and you wave goodbye. It's like
1: being a grandparent, you know. Right. It's, it's like you have the kid for a couple of hours and then it's somebody else's yeah. problem.
0: Yeah, what well, was so hard about that, yeah. right? Uh, you know. So, I have to tell you, I I came away with a lot um, this year just in the mechanics, some of the mechanics that we, we you've talked about, but the thing I take away, my big takeaway about the students is, you really have to make sure you see the whole person. Yep. Uh, each student. Yep. Uh, it, it's it's easy to um, look at a student and say, uh, well, this person doesn't really speak up much in class, or this person does, uh, or this person seems to be a good writer or has a challenge there, but y- you can't. You right. Know.
1: Well, and, and we just and our students that we have here at Boston University are very, very diverse. Exactly. Uh, the graduate students that I've had, I'd say more than two thirds are, are yeah. you know from another country. Right. And and then you add into that. I mean, even undergrad, it's probably close to a third. Right. And so you've got cultural issues, you've got language issues. And and then you also just have normal preferences. You know, some of us are introverts. Some of us are extroverts. That's right. So all of those things are coming at you at the same time. Uh, And now I do think beyond sort of this exercise of what do we do and how do we engage students and, you know, what all that is like, I actually think that I've learned a lot yes, in, yeah. in the last year right. and, uh, and, and as a consequence I almost would say that any professional uh, in, our, you know, in, in public relations, in, even in marketing, that after about a decade of just being out there right. and, and working, yeah. it, it might be smart for them to actually you know, be an adjunct, adjunct professor, yes. even if it's just for one semester. Yeah.
0: So, so tell me one thing you've learned.
1: Boy, I, I've learned a lot. I mean, I mean, first of all, what's what's kind of fun is you're forced to rethink what you already know. Right. Uh, I, I would say it's what you're doing is kind of sharpening the saw. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because because what's happening is you've been you've been out there, you've been doing the hard work, you've been dealing with crisis, reputation management, trying to reposition a brand or a company, and sometimes you don't really step back from it. Yeah, yeah. And and now we're kind of stepping back from it, but we're also looking at it across multiple industries, you know, across a, a varied I agree. Uh, yeah. landscape. And as a consequence, what we're doing is we're able to see how theory and practice align or Come don't together. align. But yeah. uh, we're also, we're at our fingertips, We've, we're able to touch and feel and see uh, some of the latest technology. Right. I mean, we have a great relationship with CISION right. right now where our students and I have, you know, complete access to all of their tools right. for use in the classrooms. And so, I'm actually more aware of those tools today than I was two when years ago. When you were a CCO, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and so you look at that from a technology standpoint, and then the other is just, the feel for the talent—it's yes. coming along. I mean, the talent is is pretty special. It is. It's not only diverse; it's smart. Yeah. And uh, these students are gonna—I mean—they're coming at the world as digital natives. Right. Uh, they're also coming at it with lots of questions. Mm-hmm and they're probably better positioned than we were you by know when far, we were young pups in this by profession by far
0: by far you know and uh, I, as i said i did a lot of guest lecturing over the years and one of the reasons i did it was because it made me better yeah right because you really had to think about the things you wanted to say to students and not fall back on assumptions or clichés or some trite you know sort of industry um, you know, thinking, uh, because they're going to ask you those questions. They're going to well, challenge your assumptions,
1: right? And I know both of us have always been big about measuring things mm-hmm. and looking at yep. things from various points of view. But I think this really enhances that.
0: Yes, yeah. And I was going to say too, this idea of the whole person, the whole student. I have been surprised so many times during, over the course of this year, yeah. and and it gets to your point about talent. Uh-huh. Because even when we were CCOs or in agencies, Mike, you know, you, you have a very short interaction with people. Mm-hmm. You, you Maybe you see them for an hour. You see their resume. You see them for an hour in an interv- interview. You, you see what the consensus is among the other folks who talk to them. But when you see the people over a course of six months um, or three months, six months, if you have them for the entire year, which I have in a couple cases, you really get to see people grow. Yeah and you see sides of them that you would never see in a short, brief interview. Yeah. And so I have been surprised so many times where someone turns in a paper and I didn't expect it and it was really good, really well done, um, You know, just really thoughtful, deep, um, and includes the theories we've discussed in class but goes beyond it. So uh, that patience with talent um, and with young people, I've just been so happy to experience well, and that. And it's so rewarding. It right? is, exactly.
1: I, I mean, to see that growth and that development. Yeah, exactly. And to also see them because their level of confidence grows. Yes. Um, there's a young woman uh, who I've had now in two classes. Uh, she's from China. Mm-hmm. and And, you know, last semester early on, I would have said, you know, not really that interested. Yeah. Uh, she's very quiet she doesn't get involved in in, in terms of classroom yeah. discussions um, but by constantly finding ways to draw her out by also providing examples that regionally and by country are of interest mm-hmm. um, now she's speaking up in class oh, that's great you know when we so went through and d- yeah, yeah and we did team projects she was like you know, yeah, she exactly. was right there. I mean, good for you. It's, but it, it's not me. I mean, it's yeah. it, it's really them. I yeah. mean, I mean that's what that's the great joy of this.
0: Yeah, and and uh, I have to say that you know we hear a lot about millennials, but mm-hmm. of course now we're into now the we're mes- Gen Z, Gen Z, <laughs> and people don't worry; they're really good, yeah, and they really, really care about the world, yeah. Um, if they know more about the world, yes, I think, in general. Exactly. At least the students we we're seeing. Right. Um, but you can really see it. They perk up when you talk about whatever you want to call it corporate social responsibility or the values of a company. Mm-hmm. Um, really, they really perk up. They're very interested in working for companies that share their values, mm-hmm. um, and they're interested in making a difference and doing it through communications, PR whatever we're calling uh, this profession that we do. So for me, it was a reaffirmation of the confidence uh, and confidence in in the people who are coming next Uh, because they've been so stereotyped to a certain degree Mm -hmm. um, about um, their behavior, their selfishness, whatever their entitlement. I got to tell you, the people I see at Boston University, over the past year uh, have impressed me so much and I feel confident that they're going to take care of the problems <laughs> that, <laughs> that y- my generation <laughs> and yours are leaving <laughs> for them have created yeah
1: <laughs> but but you know the, the other side of this too is 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 getting to some, to to what motivates them it's not just having uh, things that appeal to them by culture it's also hitting things that are relevant, yeah. new, and fresh. And, and, and I can't begin to, to tell you how many times uh, we had very rich conversations yeah. just because what we do as a profession is there in the news every day exactly yeah. you know, you know I, I made a short list of some of the things that some of my classes have been discussing I mean go go back to the fall and it was Nike and, and Kaepernick oh right you know and and, and still the NFL and Neely exactly you know and then we were talking about uh, you know Tesla mm-hmm. and the fact that you know all of a sudden its CEO who was chairman had to step down as chairman exactly uh, because of some missteps that he had made. Right. So, you know, so you kind of look at that. Even the, la- you know, the recent uh, college admissions. Oh, yeah. My class you know, got fired up about yeah, that. Yeah. 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 So, so to the extent that you can have real live conversations yeah. in the moment that use the tools and, and, and the subject matter. And your experience, matter. Mike. It, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. You've been well, there. You done
0: too. Yeah. Yeah. So here with Mike Fernandez, professor Mike Fernandez and Professor now, Gary Sheffer. And we're talking about our our first year here at Boston University. And so, Mike, I'm going to ask you a tough question here. Huh? So you're in what grade do you give yourself as a professor?
1: Oh, gee. Incomplete. Incomplete. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, I still feel like uh, like I'm learning. Yes. Um, and I, I, I feel like it's been a good year. Yeah. I feel like I grew. Yeah. Um, uh, probably not as much as my students grew. Yeah. Uh but uh, it was it, w- it was good. It was really really yeah. good. Yeah. You know, if if I think about, you know, my biggest fear and trepidation was when, you know, we'd have a 20 or 30 degree uh, oh, dip gee. in temperature and I would go out and buy <laughs> you you know Dunkin or or Starbucks yeah. just to keep my hands warm. Right. Uh but uh it's a uh, it's been fun.
0: Yeah, it's been great fun and and uh, for those of you who listening in the profession, look, you know, we've, Mike and I bring, what do we bring to the classroom? Our experience.
1: Yeah, and don't tell me how many years. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and, you know I was
0: thinking it's like 80 between <laughs> you and I. I, so I told it anyway, right? Tell them it's dog ears. I, yeah, dog ears, right? <laughs> but our network, and we've had great people come in the classroom. Uh, the students really seem to like that. And so I just want to encourage the people who are in the page society or any cco or senior person if you get asked to come in and talk to a class do it. Yep. You're going to help the students, but I guarantee you're going to help yourself. Absolutely. And and I just uh, I it and you know the future of the professions is in your hands. And so that's why I feel so satisfied when um, I hear one of the students landing a job or an internship somewhere. It just, it, it really fills me up I had that happen today. You know, did so you really? Somebody we oh, had
1: a conversation with just 10 days ago. Oh, excellent. And, and we talked about, you know, what she had to do in terms of presenting herself and yep. putting her best foot forward and found out today she got the job. Uh, excellent. Yeah.
0: Excellent. Well, listen, we're, we're here at BU and and this episode of The Crux, uh, we're going to go to an interview now with Dean Tom Fiedler, who's been here, what? Eight or nine, more than that, like nine like years. decade. Decade, yeah. yeah. Tom's a two-time Pulitzer Prize winner, a journalist, but he's helped to build this great legacy. Uh, he's a mensch. Yeah, at the College of Communications, which was, not pe- many people know, but the first PR school uh, in the world, really. Yeah, first yeah, degree yeah. program yeah, for a PR. Absolutely. And, Tom's, and still one of the largest. And still one of the largest. And Tom's been, and we're very biased, we think the best, and, uh, it's only because he hired us. <laughs> <laughs> but I've learned a lot. One of the reasons I came here was because of Tom, and just his—you uh, uh, know—his background, of course, is just quite impressive. And so he well, sat down with us. Y-
1: you know, and, he, and he's got a lot of humanity. Yeah, he does. He does. You know, he does. And, and and a lot of you know self introspection too yes. about the profession that he grew up in. Right. And and where it's headed.
0: And where it's headed. Great. Well, thanks, Mike. Congratulations on a great first year. And same to you. Yeah, I'm looking forward to, uh, I am looking forward to some time off this summer, but uh, uh, I am time also. Time off? What's oh, I know, I know. Um, but again, looking forward to next fall. So let's go to that interview with Tom Fiedler, Dean of the College of Communication here at Boston University.
1: Today on the Crux, we have Tom Fiedler, a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter, former editor of the Miami Herald, uh, and for the last nine years, dean of one of our favorite places, Gary, College of Communication at Boston University. Glad to have you, Tom.
0: I'm delighted to be here. Hey, great to see you, Tom. It's, you know, by the way, we've been salivating at the chance to really grill the dean, right? You know? <laughs> I know so somehow this is how the tables turn, <laughs> don't exactly. they? Exactly. <laughs> So uh, I'm going to start out, and um, I've been curious since, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a rookie here at BU uh, on the faculty. Um, but when I read your bio, you're a graduate of the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy with a degree in engineering. So how does that end up with an MS here in journalism at BU and then a, you know, distinguished career in journalism?
2: Well, the the uh, the reason for the shift uh, was I grew up— uh, spent all my summers in Cape Cod. So I was around the water all the time. I loved boating. And uh, when I was at that age where you start thinking about where you want to go to college, I had learned about the Merchant Marine Academy and the opportunity to uh, spend, it's a four-year program, engineering, as you said. And one of those years, you actually spend at sea, uh, essentially like an apprentice at sea. And I thought, what's not to like about this? It just sounded terrific. And uh, having no better idea of what I wanted to do, <laughs> with the rest of my life i uh, I was able to get it. It's a congressional appointment, and, right. um, and I went to the, went to the academy. Um, but then, um, as often happens, uh, all these all good stories end up involving a woman. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> my high school girlfriend at the time um, turned into my fiance and then turned into my wife, and uh, we uh, were married 10 days after I graduated from the academy wow. got my commission and my license in the merchant marine. And ten days later, I was on a ship to Vietnam, and that this was 1968, and uh, so um, I think uh, the 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 conflict between being a husband and uh, being a an officer in the Merchant Marine um, came up very quickly. Pretty sure, Our first daughter was born um, while I was at sea, my second year at sea, and I think at that point I thought I should do some serious thinking about whether there might be another career option that uh, I might pursue. So um, that, uh, I had always loved writing and I thought maybe what I can do is if I can't be on ships, uh, maybe I can write about, right about them, the sea yeah. and um, I learned a About a fellowship uh, uh, here at Boston University in the journalism program, endowed by a man who was actually the founder of Yachting Magazine, and it (laughs) was intended for someone who wanted to be a boating writer. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, that's perfect. Sounds like uh, fun, and it sounds like fun. I said, what could be better? By the way, that's Mike's favorite magazine, Yachting Magazine. Yachting Magazine. (laughs) It could well be. And I thought, okay, you you spend your life um, writing about people who have boats and sail on boats, and you cover things. Like the America's Cup yacht races, either what a great career! So, so I that's that was really the motive. I came here to uh, Boston University. I got that uh, scholarship, that in, entailed um, an internship working for a PR firm actually that handled the boating industry. And I um, uh, got my master's in journalism and decided, all right, the place to go uh, where they are, uh, in my naive thought. Is not the, Nebraska, right? Not <laughs> Nebraska. Is, you know, you go where the boats are. And um, uh, so my 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 wife and um, little daughter at the time, we packed up from Boston and moved to Florida thinking, okay, there are a lot of boats in Florida. They must need boating writers. I quickly found out that uh, that those jobs don't turn over very often and certainly not to a, a kid just right out of uh, journalism school. So I, uh, as the path that most follow, I became a general assignment reporter as it happened at the Orlando Sentinel. Which told me right away. The editor there told me right away. We do not have a boating writer's job. Orlando, as you know, is not on the ocean.
1: Landlocked.
2: <laughs> but what was happening again, serendipitously? The uh, this was just a few months before Disney World opened, and the newspaper was hiring staff anticipating what was going to happen at the in Orlando and at the newspaper. And they assigned me, they hired me, and the beat they assigned me to cover was essentially, they called it the uh, intergovernmental relations beat. But what it meant was my job was to follow all of the Disney lobbyists around Orlando. <laughs> and whenever they would be appearing before local government or state government or wherever, uh, my job was to write about that that I became my I, I, I was started navigating
1: public people. policy yeah.
2: that's exactly what it was because they were interacting with every level of government
0: I and, imagine uh, you yeah. know
2: they were trying to drain the swamps to build Disney World they were trying to build highways all of which required government interaction and it was a great education for me on how the interaction between business and power which Disney certainly had and uh government and how that works. And that that drew me into being, uh, I I, I guess, a public Mm policy-focused reporter. Mm -hmm. One thing leads to another. You go from public policy into politics. And I started covering some political campaigns. In 1972, I was sent off to cover the presidential campaign, the Democratic primary campaign of Alabama Governor George Wallace, who was well-known for his racism. And um, uh, and uh, that again, uh, you begin to be defined by the stories you do. Absolutely. And I had come to the attention of an editor at the Miami Herald, not because of my my potential as a boating writer, <laughs> um, but uh, as a political writer. And they, in 1973, the Herald hired me as a political and uh, and public policy reporter. I spent. Uh, 25 years doing that, covering every level of government, including the White House, and then um, became the editorial page editor, and shortly after that, the executive, executive editor of the editor. paper. So right. I, I I, wandered a long way from my uh, bachelor's degree. So, in so well,
0: you've covered uh, draining the swamp both in business then in politics as well, I, too, right? That's <laughs> right. Yeah, that's right. And it's a job that continues.
1: Well, you know, one of the things that's kind of interesting is as you think about your history in covering politics and now you think about what's happened to politics today how much different or challenging is it for a young reporter maybe somebody who graduated a few years ago from boston university tackling the topics that are in front of us today in washington
2: well i think a couple of things have changed, uh, not necessarily uh, for the better. Uh, one of the, the challenges today on uh, facing every reporter is dealing with the the demands imposed by technology. Mm-hmm. I mean, I perhaps uh, perhaps fortunately, uh, came up in the newspaper business where essentially we had one, Deadline a day. I, I would be out covering stories, following candidates, doing what you what you do. I would gather that together, and then I had one deadline I would focus on at night. Reporters today. Are facing um, demands constantly, not just for if you're associated with um, even even with a, a newspaper. That is one piece of it. You're, you're gathering audio. You're gathering video. You're filing um, through social media in different ways. And uh, um, there's I mean truly a deadline every minute. So the The technology has changed the requirement on just what you have to produce as a reporter. It's it's really it's very tough. I think the other side is the um, the human side, the interpersonal relationship side of it has changed somewhat. I think impacted by the by the technology, Mm -hmm. Uh, sure. But uh, the ability of a of reporters to. get to know and uh, develop relationships, and I'm not talking about a compromised relationship, but mm-hmm. simply getting uh, to be uh, uh, maybe uh, close enough to people in public office that uh, you build a relationship of trust, perhaps, or distrust, right. mm-hmm. but that's that's built on interaction over time,
0: and not is that by Tom, these leading relationships. Is that because, and so who's to, what caused that schism? Is it, on the part of journalists, or on the part of the people you're writing about? The people you're writing about, are they more reticent to open up to you? Yep.
2: Yeah, uh, they are, and I think in many cases it's understandable because they have found themselves in a situation where they feel that they are constantly under a microscope or mm-hmm. even under attack. Uh, sometimes, so their ability to, again, develop a relationship of trust where they can um, they can say to a reporter, "Look, at I, there, this is a very complicated situation, but I." I Uh, I I need to take some time. We need to talk about Mm -hmm. this. And off the record, uh, it's much harder to do that because uh, just, uh, again, the the extent – the unrelenting way that media is coming at people in office, I think, makes them extremely defensive, that mm-hmm. uh, uh, they don't really have the opportunity to develop the kind of a relationship where yeah. there could be uh, I trust th- there.
0: I think that's true in business too, oh, Mike oh yeah. and I have seen.
1: Yeah, well, you know, what's interesting to me here too is that we're 24 by 7, we're yeah. always on, uh, the world is much more contentious uh, I think than uh-huh. it used to be, particularly in the reporter, uh, spokesperson kind of relationship. Uh, What I'd really be curious is as you reflect on your role as dean, you know, uh, has the curricula changed in order to meet this changing environment?
2: It's uh, it's not just changed, it's changing constantly, and it has to do that. I think there's, uh, again, we're living in an era of, uh, of profound and constant change, largely driven by the technology and the, the way that uh, technology causes information to be consumed today. So our curriculum certainly, I mean, our curriculum is really designed to, I mean, clearly we're 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 hoping to prepare our students to enter this world, and uh, it would do us uh, no good. It certainly would do them harm if we were if if we were to provide a curriculum that. Um, was frozen mm-hmm. in who knows where, the 1990s or so forth. When when I was a student at, uh, you look back on this, I was uh, a student here at BU uh, um, in the early 1970s. And I think the reality is the expectation of a journalist entering journalism at that time was probably not Different from someone who had entered journalism in 1870. I mean, they may have expected <laughs> yeah. that uh, that we not drink as much or so forth. But uh, I don't know about um, that. <laughs> you know, but by and large, it was a, a process of you gather information by getting to know people and interviewing them and writing down what they tell you, and then pulling it together in such a way that you, that it appears. On paper, somehow, mm-hmm. uh, in the, in that future, it, that uh, that that's that's way way past us mm-hmm. now, and so uh, you know we certainly can't be preparing our students today uh, uh, the way that uh, my generation was prepared. It's uh, it's it's really about we want to have a the foundation ought to be there. There's the the ethical base of what you do, how you do it, how you relate to people. That's there. I think the the fundamentals of good storytelling are still there. But the tools that um, we are hopefully instructing our students um, to use are going to constantly change. And I think that's got to be part of the curriculum, is this this knowledge that um, tools are just that, and that they are always going to change. And so be prepared to do that. Don't be afraid of doing it. In fact, embrace that.
0: Yeah. I have one more question about journalism, then we'll get back to, to BU. Um, so I was reading a, a story in the journal recently about Facebook and um, their interest in featuring more on uh, on their site, um, local journalism mm-hmm. and local news stories. And they've been doing it about a year now. And what they found is um, there really isn't a lot of local journalism to feature. Um, mm-hmm. They call it Today In on Facebook. And, and they mentioned they're having trouble finding in some places you would expect in rural parts of the country, but also in places that are more. Uh, metropolitan like New Jersey where there's just really no local news organizations left to feature so this leads you to the this idea of news deserts and the, right. the business uh, problem related to journalism how do you solve that Tom because local journalism is so important to, to the country. Absolutely.
2: Uh, I wish I had an answer yeah. about how to solve it. I, th- uh, I think the problem may be even deeper than most of us are, are uh, even willing to uh, embrace. Uh, Local journalism, I think, used to be thought of as you know what's happening in your neighborhood, what's happening in your town, Um, and there would be uh, reporters who would cover the local planning commission, Mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. school board, and not just those boards, but the committees that supported those boards, and uh, and there was a market for that. I think people felt uh, comfortable, uh, people, consumers, citizens, uh, in knowing that someone in the the local news uh, operation is going. To be keeping an eye on what my city council is doing, what the school board is doing, what's happening in the local criminal courts, and now those for in many 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 communities those beats no longer exist, and um, so I think one of the problems that Facebook uh, found or has realized is that the definition of what is local has. maybe has shrunk mm-hmm. in that uh, that local becomes almost now much larger than local. It's uh, okay, we, we can perhaps write about what's happening, the big news in a particular city on in some given day. But uh, who is out there writing about the potential zoning change that is going to affect the character of somebody's neighborhood? Mm-hmm. And who's worried about who's taking care of uh, picking up the garbage and fixing the streets? Mm-hmm. That's what's really lost. Exactly. Yeah. I think if there is uh, an answer, um, it, it will come up hopefully from, um, uh, from people Citizens, you hear the phrase citizen Mm -hmm. journalism. I usually shrink from that and say it's (laughs) citizen provided information. But uh, ultimately, uh, I think if people recognize there is a need for this kind of information and um, perhaps again almost um, organically it grows, somebody starts a blog who's covering you know, the local neighborhood exactly. and that blog starts to get a basis. So I think you could start to see some kind of, uh, of journalism that begins to emerge and um, uh, and informs people. But people, the, the consumers of that also have to become um, more, um, uh, I guess, uh, knowledgeable, more literate about how to separate what is Good information, quality information, and what may be somebody's which rant can be very, very difficult. Very difficult, and um,
1: well, you know, we I see that, that getting defined every day by even our political leaders. Mm-hmm. We hear fake news. That's we hear, right. you know, I guess as uh, when when you think about the Miami Herald, you think about kind of what it has to deal with every day today, uh, or the Washington Post or the New York Times. Um, Who do you think are like the exemplars in being able to um, kind of deflect this notion that there's fake news out there and that somehow journalists are the arbiters of that?
2: That's that's an excellent question and a troubling one if uh, – I mean right now we obviously have uh, a president who delights in attacking the media and using that phrase, fake news, uh, urging his supporters to essentially ignore everything that they have seen in the media. That is uh, – that's, that's toxic. Because if uh, people begin to lose uh, faith in what they're seeing, even in some of the, again, I think the most successful media outlets, then the media's ability to do what the framers of our Constitution meant, which is to be that uh, that check on government, the watchdog of government, that, that's gone people don't believe the watchdog when the watchdog is barking, then we've mm-hmm. lost, I think, everything, including our democracy. So um, I lost the train of the, th- of the question there, Mike. But I think this whole idea of uh, uh, attacking the media is, uh, you know, is, is very – is threatening and uh, something we need to worry about the way the media can combat it. Uh, is uh, I quote Marty Baron, often the editor mm-hmm. now of the Washington Post, is you just have to do your job every day and do it as well as you possibly can, and uh, that is in journalism is uh, it's simplistic, but you find the truth and you publish it. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. what it's all about. Yeah, absolutely. Uh,
1: now, now the school, the college, um, does more than educate journalists. Um, it's a, a big part of uh, our student body or people who are studying public relations mm-hmm. um, and marketers and advertising uh, professionals for the future. Um, what responsibility do those disciplines have in this conversation?
2: Well, uh, I think... One of the things I'm really proud of uh, here at Boston University and in our program entirely is that it is built on integrity. If you go back to the founder of uh, the, what is now the College of Communication, this was back in 1947, the, uh, he, the, the president of the university then made a really, I thought, uh, an eloquent speech in which he talked about the the meaning of public relations, and he said very explicitly that it is not the person who is going to be uh, shilling for a particular product or whatever it is. It's uh, it, uh, he believed that public relations was any anti- any interaction between the media and the public, and that that in order to be meaningful had to be built on 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 integrity, on trust, and uh, that's uh, his vision for what would become, again, the College of Communication had that as its core, Mm -hmm. and he believed that public relations and journalism, advertising, and and then the the tools that come out of that television, film, and so forth, all had to share that common foundation Mm -hmm. because ultimately what... um, what we're doing is we are educating our students in communicating with the public, and if that communication is in any way polluted or tainted, then uh, then we have failed. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so I I think that yes, there are different uh, perhaps missions. Taken on by someone in advertising, someone in uh, in journalism, someone in public relations, but that doesn't mean that the again the the, the fountain from which all that springs uh, can't be as as uh, as, as honest mm-hmm. as truthful as we can make it.
0: So let me um, ask you one one more question about BU and the education here, and this one's sort of for the students. Um, You said in 2012 that the future of communications education was sort of frightening and challenging. And you used a phrase that I really like, uh, the need for enduring learning. And that's a really great phrase that applies Mm -hmm. to any profession, any kind of job. What did you mean by it? Back then you were talking about, Tom, the challenge of technology, which was, as you said, changing everything uh, that we do in, in ways that we didn't expect. So how do you become a lifelong learner, particularly in the PR or, or journalism profession?
2: Uh, well, I, uh, I think the the answer is you just, you have to make yourself be that. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it, change is difficult for mm-hmm. everybody. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, you'd much rather be able to say, oh, okay, I've learned this much, that's enough, I'm gonna stop. Uh, but you cannot do that and continue to be successful. You're right, technology is a part of that. Technology, as I mentioned earlier, uh, is uh, always going to provide new tools mm-hmm. by which we communicate. But uh, but society doesn't change. Culture doesn't change. Situations don't change. And uh, I think for those of us who are, who are communicators, want to be effective uh, in communication, that uh, that we have to embrace the idea that learning is a constant, that you cannot be satisfied that what, I, what I've what i learned last year or last decade is going to be relevant today or you're not relevant mm-hmm. today. And that really, I think, is uh, that's the end of it if you are no longer relevant.
0: So we have two graduate students in the studio with us today. So please take note of what <laughs> Dean Fiedler has <just> had to <laughs> yeah. say.
2: One of the phrases that, uh, that I have stolen and, uh, and use often as a, as a metaphor is uh, the great hockey player Wayne Gretzky. Mm-hmm. And I'm, you're nodding your head. You probably know this. Uh, Wayne Gretzky was once asked, what's the difference between being a good hockey player and being a great hockey player? And he said, well, a good hockey player plays where the puck is, but a great hockey player plays where the puck is going to be. Mm-hmm. And I thought that's exactly what we need to embrace here at the College of Communication. We could be a good College of Communication if we just simply taught our students um, Uh, about what is happening now. But if we're gonna be a great college of communication, what we wanna do is prepare our students uh, to to look at where communication is going to be sometime in the future and constantly be looking at that and be agile in seeking it.
0: Thanks for listening to The Crux and make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter. And you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.